Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to episode eight. This is a really good one. I speak with my neighbor and friend, Virginia Soul Smith, author of the new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. She's also the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Her reporting on diet culture, health, and parenting has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, and many other publications. She also writes the popular anti-diet newsletter, Burnt Toast, and she hosts the Burnt Toast podcast, both of which I will link to below. In this episode, we explore anti-fat bias and fat phobia and how weight, health, and beauty have gotten all tangled up with notions of morality. We discuss how we as a culture have become so afraid of fat and how this fat phobia has resulted in real systems of oppression where humans are valued according to their weight. Virginia explores what it means to be healthy and the fallacy of linking weight to health. We talk about diet culture and how restriction just doesn't work. And Virginia offers real tips on how we can start to change the system and gain body autonomy as well as how we can raise kids who have body autonomy. We go into feeding kids and how we can teach them that their bodies belong to them and that all bodies are equal. Such powerful, easy tips. You're gonna get so much out of this conversation. As always, if it resonates, you can support this work by rating the podcast on your podcast app, by leaving a comment, or by sharing it with your friends. All right, let's dive in. Welcome, Virginia. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you too. So for those of you listening who might not know this, Virginia and I are neighbors. We Well, somewhat. We live down the road from one another. It's a long and windy mountain road, but I could <laughs> be waving at you right now, like through the trees. Exactly. Trees. This is not a road I would walk to your house on, but no, I love no, it. No, not that kind of neighborhood, but... <laughs> So I'm going to start by asking you the first question I ask all of my guests. What is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? Sure. So my dad is Midwestern and my mom is British. So my cultural upbringing is white. (laughs) I grew up in Connecticut to add another layer of whiteness to the white picture. So, you know, my... Childhood food culture was very 80s. I was a really cautious eater. So until I was about 12, it was basically like spaghetti with marinara sauce, turkey sandwiches on white bread with the cuss cut off, peanut butter and jelly, same, maybe a strawberry yogurt. That was about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like what I was into. And then like the sort of foods that were really like fun to me was like the fudge we would get at the beach every summer on vacation. Um, in England at Easter, you get these big chocolate eggs that are like hollow mm. with candy inside. And so like my chocolate Easter egg every year that my grandmother would send over from England. And another big comfort food is Marmite and butter on toast because that's something Wow. My mom. Yeah, which is like a a polarizing one. Never tried it. And I feel like it's, I don't think I can anymore because isn't Marmite made from gluten? Is that right? 
It's yeast extract. Oh, it's, it's from, yeast. Fermented oh. yeast extract, I think. Wow. All right. All right. But I would double check the gluten question. I'm not, <laughs> not real confident about that. Um, <laughs> it is an extremely pungent flavor. Mm. And I am pretty sure if you were not fed it as a baby, you will not like it. Like, this is my soft theory about my mom. Like, my mom fed it to me as a baby food. So wow. I love it, and it's, like, mm. super comforting to me. I have it when I'm sick still or mm. just, like, you know, it's, like, a comfort food. Yeah. But, like, you know, Dan, my husband, like, on one of our first dates, he was, like, I'll try it. I'm sure I'll love it. Yeah. And was, like, has, like, never recovered. <laughs> like, he's offended. <laughs> we keep it in the house. <laughs> this is my husband and liverwurst. I love liverwurst. Yeah. And the one I stuck a piece in his mouth one time, and I literally thought he was going to punch me in the face. The only physical aggression, I saw it in his eyes. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I love this work food. Out. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so... Like, my sort of cultural relationship with food and my own relationship with food as a kid was, like, pretty cautious and pretty much just, like, kid food. Mm -hmm. And then sometime around 12, I was suddenly hungry. <laughs> and something changed. I feel like it must relate to puberty and growth spurts mm -hmm. and whatever else. And I became suddenly, like, almost overnight a very adventurous eater. And this is something I really hold on to with my own relationship with my children feeding yes. them. Like, yes. okay, it can change. Yep. It may not, but it can. And, you know, the other piece of it is my stepdad is Italian. And so I like to say I'm like a quarter Italian by marriage. So I did also grow up, he's been in my life since I was three. So I also grew up like eating his mom's cooking okay. and like a lot of pasta. And like that was also a piece of, you know, we would do the big like Italian seven fishes on Christmas Eve and wow. that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that like got me to love garlic and got me to love mm. more flavors and sort of helped pave the way to more adventurous eating. Yeah, I love that. I love that what you said as well as about kids. My husband, James was the same way. He was such a picky eater and now he eats everything and it took yeah. him longer, I think. But, you know, palates change and I'm always telling my kids that as well. Yeah, and I think just like giving kids the chance to explore on their own terms, you know, like yeah. I think... My parents, I give a lot of credit to. Like, I don't think I was an easy kid to feed, but mm. they just really didn't push it. They were pretty like, okay, this is how she eats. And, you know, they never made me feel really bad about it. My British grandmother had a harder time. She, you know, like World War II survivor, very clean your plate, and like, we don't waste food. And so for her, it was like really hard that I wouldn't eat the shepherd's pie she made and that kind of thing. Yeah. But my parents, my mom in particular, she had been picky as a kid. And like 1950s England was a really tough context to be a picky wow. kid. Yeah. So she was very big on like, we will not force you to eat this. You'll get there when you get there. And yeah, that yeah. was a real gift. Well, this is a great segue because today we're going to talk about your new book. Congratulations. Thank it's you. fantastic. The book's called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, and I've had the pleasure to read it. Before we jump into the book, can you just describe a little bit about what you do for those who don't know you, as well as why this book, why this piece of work? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a journalist and specifically like a health, nutrition, fitness journalist for, oh gosh, like 20 years now. Started my career in women's magazines. So for the first decade or so, most of the stories I wrote were how to make your body smaller. And in many different iterations, you know, it was like why eating organic matters so much, portion control, like it's not a diet, you're just like eating the rainbow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. et cetera. So it was really deep into all of that. And then at the same time, really uncomfortable as a feminist, really uncomfortable with the idea that we were telling women their bodies were wrong and mm. that they needed to change things. 
And also seeing over and over that it didn't work, you know, like this is like we're hearing over and over from readers that they want more of this. So obviously nobody's landing on the magical, you know, unicorn diet that actually lasts and is a sustainable way to live. And my own body was changing. I was a thin kid. I had a lot of thin privilege growing up. And when I got into my later teens and 20s, my body shifted, became at first just sort of on the large end of straight size and then ultimately plus size. And realizing that dieting could maybe prevent that in the short term, but was like an absolutely miserable way to live. It just, you know, I would try it and just be like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> like For whatever reason, like I'm hardwired to like not be able to withstand hunger like ever. So restriction was not something that I was interested in. And so just really muddling through all of that for a long time, like continuing to write these stories, continuing to search for these answers, but also seeing more and more directly how much it wasn't serving people and wasn't serving me. And then when I became a parent, you know, all of this started to feel just like heavier in a way. Like Mm -hmm. I was really aware that I didn't want my daughters to have to move through the same morass of negativity and anxiety and the questioning and the narratives in our heads and all of that. So, you know, the other piece of this is in 2018, I published my first book, which is called The Eating Instinct, Mm -hmm. Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And that explored our cultural relationship with food and how much everything we understand about food is filtered through this lens of the thin ideal and wanting Mm -hmm. to make yourself smaller. And in talking to folks about that book, I in particular heard a lot from parents. And the questions that would always come up were telling me that parents were caught between this kind of rock and a hard place. Because I think our generation, millennial parents, Gen X parents, know that we don't want our kids to hate their bodies. We know we don't want to pass on the kind of diet culture we grew up with in the 90s. But we also still really fear fatness and we don't want our kids to be fat. We think that's going to make their lives harder. We think they'll be less lovable, you know, all of that. Mm. And it just kind of hit me one day, like, we are not going to be able to achieve the first goal if we can't let go of the second thing. Mm. You cannot fully love your body. You cannot have a peaceful relationship with food in your body if you have parameters around what kind of body is worthy of that freedom. Mm. And that just connects to the sort of whole larger sense in which, you know, as a culture, the way we treat fat bodies. And I realize, like, we also need to think about this as a social justice issue, as a form of systemic oppression that we, of course, don't want to perpetuate to our kids or raise them to perpetuate. Yes. One thing that you say in your introduction which I love is you say what we need to do instead is redefine fat talk to stop making fatness the worst case scenario and to start reclaiming it as a perfectly fine way to have a body. You use fat as a neutral descriptor, which is very liberating because as we all know, fat is such a loaded word. Yep. How did fat become so loaded? That's a big question. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's been loaded for centuries is the short Mm. answer. You know, you can see anti-fat bias in the plays of Shakespeare. If you think about how the fat characters are, you know, all jokes and, you know, villains. And you can see it in the way the ancient Greeks talked about ideal bodies and the way the sculptures Mm. were made, you know. And yes, in the Renaissance, like the women are fat in those paintings and celebrated, but like 
there's always been this like rigid ideal about what the best body is to have and how much work we should put into that. Mm. And then what you really see in the United States is at the end of slavery in the late 19th century, you see the thin ideal becoming even more rigid because it was a way of upholding white supremacy. Wow. If you have Black folks being freed, in control of their own bodies for the first time in this country, mm-hmm. but you still want to persecute them and keep your hierarchy of who has cultural power, then demonizing fatness is a way of demonizing blackness and demonizing, mm-hmm. you know, bodies that you want to other. And yes. it's also a way of keeping women down because, yes. you know, women get like a double dose of all of these messages. So it's really difficult to reclaim fatness, but it's also I used to say, oh, if it feels comfortable for you and this isn't for everyone, and I still want to make space for, like, it's not going to feel easy or safe for a lot of folks because fat has been weaponized against us. Yeah. But I also think it is actually a really critical piece of the work that we do Mm. this because if you can't view fat as a neutral or even positive way to have a body— you're really only ever reinforcing, you know, if you're relying yeah. on euphemisms, if you're saying to your kids, don't say fat, that's not nice. Don't talk about people's bodies because it's not nice to say fat. Like if you're doing it that way, you're still telling them that fat is wrong. Yeah. And that's what we need to unpack. Yeah. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit Food Newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. Another thing you say that really struck me that I'd love to explore is how tangled together weight, health, beauty, and morality. Like where did morality, I mean, you kind of just touched on this. Yeah. And that it really does come kind of from these higher structures of hierarchy of control, but How did morality get sucked into this connection? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely rooted in the white supremacy stuff. We have always had this cultural narrative around health as being a moral virtue and being a form of cultural capital. So it's not just that we want our kids to be healthy because it's scary to think about someone getting diabetes or heart disease. Like, of course it is. That's there. That's a piece of it. But it's also because if we are raising kids who are perceived as healthy, we are seen to be better parents, specifically Mm. as moms. This is our, like, one job, right, is to raise healthy, happy kids. Mm -hmm. And we think healthy, happy kid means a thin kid. We don't think a fat kid can be healthy and happy. Mm. And so there's a lot of cultural judgment. There's a lot put on that word health that Mm -hmm. isn't really about, like, how in tune someone feels with their body, how much energy they have, you know, whatever their disease profile is. And it's a very ableist way of thinking about it too, right? Like even if you're not healthy, your body's valuable. Your body's worthy of dignity and safety and respect. So when I think of that all the time, because I have a child with a chronic condition and people, you know, when you're pregnant, people will say to you, like, all you want is a healthy baby. It doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. Mm. And you just think like, 
well, not every baby's going to be healthy. Yeah. And, you know, what, what did you just say to that parent? Like, you know, you just told them it doesn't matter or that yeah. their baby's not as valuable. So stepping back from the importance of health in some ways, for me, that was actually harder than reclaiming fat. And I think that has to do with having grown up with thin privilege and not having had fat weaponized against me as intensely for as long, even though I am now a fat adult. But health was like, well, of course I want health. Of course I want my kids to be healthy. You know, that was like a really hard one for me to realize, like, oh, wait, what am I actually upholding when I say I want to be healthy or I want my kids to be healthy? Yeah. It's really hard. That's where we have to really look because it is that connection between healthy and thinness, which you completely untangle in the book through lots of what I love about your book is it's not only heavily researched, but it's also a lot of human story. Mm -hmm. So you get to see the emotional side of some of these assumptions that we carry. Can you actually speak a little bit about that, about all of these assumptions we have about weight and health and the fallacy of that? Yeah. So there's a couple layers to this. One is just at a basic research level, people think that fat equals unhealthy and thin equals healthy. And we actually don't have research to support that being some kind of unequivocal truth. Mm -hmm. What we see in the research is that, in fact, like people with higher BMIs in the quote overweight or lower obese range live longer than people in the normal and underweight ranges. Mm. So right there, it's like, oh, wait, so even if you have more health problems, if you live longer, you know, and it may be that body weight is protective in some of those circumstances, and it may be that weight and health are just much less related than we think. And so Mm. the research is showing us that it is much murkier than we think. There are, of course, times when body weight is a factor in health, both weight loss and weight gain, like those sudden shifts up or down can be a sign that there's something going on. But usually adjusting the weight isn't going to be what treats the underlying health problem. If you have gained a bunch of weight because you are depressed, you don't need to go on a diet. You need therapy and medication to manage your depression. You know, if you lost a bunch of weight because you have a restrictive eating disorder, you do need to weight restore as part of your eating disorder treatment. But that's not the only thing you need to do, right? Mm -hmm. So again, we can just see it's so nuanced. And it's so much more than just like everyone's health will improve if they drop weight and everybody's health will get worse if their weight goes up. That's really not true for the vast majority of people. And the other piece of it is we really define health so narrowly We basically, when people say health, what they usually mean is body size and cardiovascular health. And those two things, one, I think is pretty irrelevant to the conversation of health. Mm -hmm. Cardiovascular health absolutely is super important. Like, you know, we do all need our hearts to function well and hopefully work well for as long as they can. But why are we reducing such a complicated concept to like a blood pressure reading? Yeah. Or, you know, when health is also your Mm -hmm. mental health, it is you know, just so many other things. It's how 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 you move through your day, your energy levels, how you're sleeping, your emotional state. And when we prescribe weight loss as our primary treatment, and often for fat folks, this is like the only medical treatment we get, right? Anything that shows up on a health scan, the answer is lose weight. Oh, Even geez. if you're like, my knees hurt or I have a sinus issue or something that like really isn't weight tied. Yeah. The answer is lose weight. And when we do that, we're completely ignoring and under treating people's true health issues. Mm -hmm. So it really is not health promoting to keep the conversation there and not look at this much broader constellation of issues that makes up any one person's individual health. 
Oh, yeah. And really, this kind of leads into something else I want to talk about, because we can't talk about fat oppression without talking about thin privilege. Mm -hmm. You say that the conflict is not between fat and thin, but against the system itself, against a system that really values humans according to their weight. And, you know, I'm a human in a thin body, and that's not to say I haven't had a very complicated relationship with my body, because I have. However, as I'm unlearning this, this has granted me an immense amount of privilege. And often with privileges, unless we see it, we don't even know it's there and we can't change the system. So can you talk about what thin privilege means and how this shows up? Yeah. So thin privilege is as basic as you get on an airplane and you don't have to think twice about whether your seatbelt is going to buckle Mm. or whether you're going to be told you have to buy two seats, you know, and pay literally double what other people are paying just to get on the same flight. Thin privilege is going to the doctor and being treated for your health issues rather than just prescribed weight loss. Thin privilege is if you're a kid and you're joining a sports team, you don't have to worry about whether the jersey comes in your size. You Mm. may not join the sports team if you're a fat kid because they may not have a uniform that fits you and no one wants to be that kid, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's access to public spaces. It's being treated respectfully. It's going to restaurants and knowing you can sit in the chairs and move, maneuver between the tables without feeling like you don't belong there and like no one actually wants your body in that space. And the really important thing to understand about thin privilege, well, there's two, I think there's two really important things to understand. One is, as you said, you can struggle tremendously with your personal relationship with your body and still benefit from thin privilege. Mm -hmm. So this is not to say that anybody's internal struggle doesn't matter or isn't valid and doesn't need support. It absolutely does. You deserve all the support in the world for that. But you also need to understand that There is a larger system of oppression that you are Mm -hmm. benefiting from Mm -hmm. that other people are being pushed down by. And I often see this in the discourse online where, you know, a thin commenter might say something like, well, I really struggle with my body size, too. I've hated my body for years. And the fat person is like, I don't I'm I'm not saying I hate my body. Mm -hmm. I'm saying my body's not able to fit into the world. I'm saying I can't get clothes in my size. Yes. It's a different conversation. Yes. So that's one piece of it. The other thing to understand is thin privilege is a spectrum. And so, you know, I, as someone who's on the smaller end of fat, I literally use the term small fat to reference the fact that I wear plus sizes, but I can go on the airplane and I can fit into restaurants and, you know, that I have a lot of thin privilege built into my fatness Mm. that someone in a bigger body than me doesn't have. I can go to a doctor and just say, I'm not going to get on the scale today. And it completely changes my experience of the medical appointment. They won't talk about my weight. They respect Mm. the decision. And I suddenly get much better health care because my doctor's like, oh, let me actually have a conversation with her about her lifestyle and her health concerns and her goals. But if you're fatter than me, that doesn't happen even if you say I'm not going to get on the scale because they can see that you're fatter and they're already making all those assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so often for a fat person, it doesn't even feel safe to say I'm not going to get weighed because they're like, now I'm setting up a whole antagonistic thing and I have to figure out how to work with this doctor and get the focus off my weight and that's not going to help. So there's just so many examples of this that, you know, when you think about any aspect of this conversation that you personally struggle with, I think it's really valuable to think, well, how would this be even harder if I was in a bigger body? Mm-hmm. And how is my struggle and focusing on my struggle minimizing my ability to support and center other people who are struggling even more? 
Mm. And it's a tricky, messy space. People get very defensive around this conversation. I think it's really tough to name our privileges. Yeah. But it's really important, and it's really important to not just name our privileges, but also look for opportunities to put them down, right? Yeah. So, like, if you're not going to get weighed at the doctor's office because you know you're in a body where they'll accept that, can you also, if you feel comfortable and safe with this healthcare provider, work on advocating, like, explaining why you're not getting weighed and why you think that weight-inclusive healthcare is really important? Like, how can we push ourselves, those of us with this privilege, how can we push ourselves to do more work? Mm. Which is not to say you're going to be able to do it all the time because, you know, we're human and we yeah. all run out of bandwidth. But yeah, it's helpful to hold ourselves accountable. In that well, way. something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, your book is called Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And I really think a lot of this, a lot of the work that we can do is with our own children, if you have children, and Absolutely. how we teach them to talk about these or and to think about these subjects. You devote a large chunk of your book to that. But can we talk about that? Because I have a daughter who just turned 13 and I had disordered eating in my late teens and early 20s. And there's so much fear there for me mm-hmm. not wanting her to experience the same thing. And also, she's so comfortable in her skin right now. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like the factors now are different from the factors when we were a kid. We don't have like this low fat craze in the 90s like you and I grew up with. However, there's, you know, TikTok and influencers yes. and I can't restrict her completely from all of that. How do we start to talk to our kids? How do we start to protect them or teach them so that they can go about, you know, with this knowledge and with this confidence? So I think you're completely right. We can't restrict it. And I don't think we should. I think that temptation, which I have also had of like, I just want to throw all the screens into the sea (laughs) and keep you in a bubble where we don't have to deal with this. Like, that is a diet culture mindset, though, yes, right? It of is. like, if yeah. I can just follow these rules and keep yeah. you in a bubble and it'll all be fine, like that's diet culture showing Restriction up. Restriction never works, does it? It never no. does. No. It never does. It's no. irritating that it can't be used for good, but I really don't think it can. <laughs> but instead, we have to think how is all of this an opportunity to help our kids build the skills that they need that we might not have had at their ages, mm-hmm. but that are really important to develop? And so, I think this can happen in a couple different ways. You know, I really encourage parents to seek positive fat representation whenever they can in books, in art you put up in your home, in music. We are a proud Lizzo family because, you know, Special is like such a great album for kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, for all of us, it's spiritually very important to me. But like, you know, looking for those fat role models, whatever your kids are interested in. Like a benefit of social media is if your kid is interested in rock climbing or surfing or whatever, like you can find a fat person doing those things and show them that fat people can have these rich, full, beautiful lives. And this is important to do even if you have thin kids. Because your thin kids may not be thin adults. Not everybody who's a thin kid stays thin their whole life. Bodies change. So you don't want them to feel like if and when their bodies change. I mean, it's a when that their body's going to change, right? But like, even if they don't end up fat, however their body changes, you don't want them to experience that as a failure. You want them to experience that as normal and to understand Mm -hmm. that their body size is not their value. So if they know that people in all different body sizes can do all the things they love and value, it's much easier for them to roll with the way their bodies might change because Mm. they're not linking, oh, I love ballet to I have to be thin in order to do ballet. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a really big piece of the work. And then when you do see the negative stuff, you have to not be afraid to name it and have conversations about it. And, you know, I've been doing this since my kids were really little. And a lot of the time it's like, oh, there's mom again. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they say the same thing. About <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Can you stop yeah, pressing mom. pause on the show we're trying to watch <laughs> and just let us watch the show? But you will start to see them identifying it themselves, which is really cool. Mm. I talk about in the book when my older daughter was reading Harry Potter and was like, oh, mom, you're going to hate this. They've got Dudley Dursley on a diet. And mm. I was like, okay, then. Like, I love that. She if knows. I had not let you yeah. read Harry Potter, you wouldn't have been able to do that work of identifying that. And then we were able to talk about, like, there's so much we love about this book, but also J.K. Rowling's really problematic for a lot of reasons. <laughs> you know, we could go into all the different things. More recently, there's like an iPad game she loves that's like penguins. I don't speak iPad games, but you know, one of these games she's downloaded. <laughs> it's definitely for kids, but it shows ads every so often because it's a free game. So, you yeah. know, they show you ads. And she comes over to me and she's playing this adorable children's game. And the ad is for keto weight loss drugs. Oh, stop. Like pill supplements. No. And she's like, what is this? <laughs> And again, it's like, wow. you want to throw the iPad into the sea. You yes. want to just burn it all down and be like, no more games for you. <laughs> but uh. instead, it led to like so many great conversations about advertising mm. and misleading messages. And then the ad would pop up every so often and she'd come over and be like, it says expert approved. What kind of expert would approve this? Like, who would think that they should show this to kids? And like, wow. you know, will this completely inoculate her against ever hating her body? Probably not. But does it at least mean she has a strong foundation to come back to, you know? Like, that's yeah. what I think we can do. And the critical thinking ability to see the system. Yeah, yeah. This kind of leads me into my next question, which is about feeding our kids. Because as you say, we live in a fat-phobic culture. We mm-hmm. fear fat. No longer as much in the food we eat, but systemically, fat is feared in bodies. How do we start to feed our kids in a way that is liberating for all. You talk a lot about division of responsibility, which is what Mm -hmm. we do at my house as well, or what we know what we try to do. And it's not a perfect system and we make mistakes. And there is fear. There is, you know, my daughter just turned 13 and I just, this is the way we do. She is in charge of feeding herself breakfast, lunch. She has no oversight. I don't care. Mm And there's times when I see her making her boba tea in the afternoon, adding whipped cream on top. And part of me wants to be like, so... <laughs> and part of me is just like, shut up, Nikki. Like, let yeah, her do it. Yeah, yeah. But can we talk about feeding kids? Because this is, you know, a big part of how they learn to have body authority. Yeah, I think fundamentally what we need to do is shift our focus away from feeding healthy kids means perfect nutrition to feeding healthy kids means body autonomy. Mm, And that shift is really pivotal because if you are thinking that your goal is to get your kids to consume a certain amount of certain foods and less of some foods and more of other foods, you are always going to be manipulating and micromanaging. And most likely that is underpinned by anti-fat bias, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. worried about health, but as we've said, health is all tangled up with thinness. You're trying to maintain their body size or keep them small or make them smaller, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also just like a maddening way to feed children because like developmentally, children are not there for it. They are not available for you to count their peas or require Brussels sprouts before cookies or any of that. Like just no. 
So shifting from that and instead saying, my goal for feeding my kids is to teach them that their bodies belong to them and to realize that actually me pushing food on them because I love them and want them to eat a certain way is their first lesson in my right to consent to this doesn't matter. You know, if you want your kid to grow up and be able to say no to things that don't feel good and safe in their bodies, which I think we all do, especially those of us raising girls, then them being able to say no to eating something or no to eating more of something or also saying, no, I know I need to eat more of this. I know I do want more. You're saying I should eat less and I'm saying no to that. That is so powerful and such a great set of skills to practice at your family dinner table that's going to serve them in so many other arenas. And so it is really hard because kids eat in this like bananas way where they're just like all one food group for three weeks and nothing else. And then that food is dead to me and I want all this other thing. And like it is completely maddening. But if you can just keep coming back to like, am I building like body autonomy? Am I teaching them to trust themselves? Am I reinforcing Mm. that their body belongs to them? I think you're headed in the right direction. But it definitely means taking a bird's eye view and looking at how they eat over the course of a month, not over like you don't live and die by any one meal. Yeah, You sort of roll with a lot of what looks like very chaotic eating. But the difference between chaotic eating that is destructive and chaotic eating that is developmentally appropriate is that element of body trust. If you can Mm. see kids eating in a way that is like they are clearly in tune with their own hunger and also their own needs for comfort and nourishment, which isn't necessarily physical hunger. Like your daughter may love that whipped cream on her boba tea in the afternoon because she has put in a day at school and she needs a delicious treat Mm -hmm. and something comforting to sort of like get her ready to do homework or get her, you know, mm-hmm. just like, like take a breath. And yeah. that is something we all deserve to have that comforting ritual with food. Mm-hmm. Like what a beautiful thing Yeah, that she has that lovely ritual that she makes herself that boba tea with the whipped cream. Mm, what a beautiful way to reframe it. And just to put that into perspective, really, if that's the goal is to teach our kids body autonomy, everything shifts from yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I love it. I have another question. This one is you know, I talk a lot about in my work about how we're conditioned around food in our bodies. And we've touched upon some of these systems that condition us, that turn our bodies into the other. You know, we're talking patriarchy, we're talking racism, we're talking even our cultural and religious upbringing. But another way that we're conditioned around food is through food corporations themselves. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's so much manipulation that I see with respect to food packaging, food labeling, what's healthy, what's not healthy, advertising, even I would say product formulations. Mm -hmm. How do we distance ourselves from that? Or I guess I'm asking you your tips for that. How do you distance yourself from that so that you can enjoy the food you want to enjoy while not getting kind of sucked into this other layer of a system that's really trying to have power over our decision making? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a tricky one. It's funny, a friend just emailed me this morning and was like, okay, I'm all in on intuitive eating, but what about the ultra processed foods? What about the foods that are formulated to make me want more and more and more of them? Like, what do I do with that? You know, Mm -hmm. and that's a very fair question because you're right. The way a lot of foods are formulated, it is with the like high salt, high fat, bliss point, all that built into them to make them foods that you crave. 
But the other thing that the food manufacturers do, and this is true of ultra-processed foods, this is true of diet foods, this is true of the whole, like, crunchy granola section of the grocery mm-hmm. store with all yeah. the, you know, oh, like, he- healthy bands. Yeah. They are all marketing diet culture in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think about it, they are yes. all selling you restriction. Yes. The reason the Bliss Point foods are so appealing is because they come with slogans like, once you pop, you can't stop, or be bad and, like, you know, indulge. Like, they are selling you the idea that you will be out of control around this food because it tastes so great, and mm. you will need to eat so much of it. And I don't think we can untangle the physical formulations of the food from that context because it's all kind of one and the same, right? I don't think there's any research that's been done on the dangers of ultra-processed foods where they've really been able to take in terms of humans. Like, they do Mm -hmm. feed them to rats and are like, look, it makes the rats all crazy. But rats don't have diet culture. They can be deprived, though. They can be restricted intensely, and then they go crazy eating all these foods, but they've had the underlying restriction given to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really difficult to extrapolate from that what humans are going to do because humans have diet culture. We have all the messaging. You can't find a group of humans that hasn't been exposed to all this messaging and only feed them the foods with no marketing. Like, that's just not easy research to do. And in fact, just to go back to the rat research, one interesting thing is when they give rats free access to sugar or whatever other highly palatable foods they're studying and they don't restrict them first, the rats don't binge on the sugar. Mm. So even with rats, we can see that at the core, what you need to do is teach people restriction. And then it's so hard to manage your intake of these highly palatable foods. Mm -hmm. I even think about this with kids' food, right? Like the granola bars that come prepackaged or the little packages of goldfish crackers. And then you feel stressed because your kid wants to eat three packages. And you're like, but a serving size is one package. And it's like, Okay, but who decided that? Nobody who's ever met your kid. Your kid might just be hungry for the amount of goldfish in three packages today. And that is not wrong, except it's marketed in a way that enforces restriction Mm. because they put it in the little pouches and, like, try to tell you that that's how much they should eat. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the underlying thing is anytime you start getting anxious about the processed food thing, look for where the restriction is showing up. Mm -hmm. Because what I have found, and obviously my household is a N of one, you know, This is not going to be everybody's journey, but it is reflected in research on people who don't diet and that kind of thing. We have a lot of processed foods in our house. I can tell you we have a lot of boxes of things that I have bought thinking they are everybody's favorite food and nobody will finish the goddamn thing of Oreos (laughs) because everyone's sick of Oreos because there's no restriction around Oreos in my house. Mm -hmm. And so Oreos are a great example of like, I think we can all agree, ultra processed, bliss point, you know, Mm -hmm. perfectly formulated And I cannot sell them to my children. Mm, (laughs) mm -hmm. I cannot, like, market these effectively anymore because my kids don't have a restricted mindset around them. Yeah. Now, when a new food comes in, we discover a new food we're excited about. Of course, like, puffy Cheez-Its are really big right now with my five-year-old. Like, she'll eat bowl after bowl of puffy Cheez-Its. And every time this happens with a new food, there is that part of my brain that's still stuck in all this. That's like, oh, my God, this one, this one, she has no control over it. This one, what do I do? Mm. And then the same thing happens. Two weeks later, she's like, Mama, do you want to finish my puffy Cheez-Its? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just mad I bought so many. (laughs) You know, that was hard for me. Ella, my oldest, has a major sweet tooth. And it was really hard for me when she was young because I felt like she was just going to eat all the sugar in the house. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment where I I, I literally, it was 
because of my own impatience, I think she was like four and she was just asking and asking and asking for candy. And finally, I was just like, whatever you want. Whatever, mm-hmm. I, just stop asking me. Like, just right, I'm, I, please, I'm can we not have this conversation? Trying to regulate this, <laughs> yeah. and then it's full access. And that was the most educational moment for me because this was really. She's 13 now. This was really before we've really started talking about intuitive eating with kids, and mm-hmm. she completely self-regulated. Yeah, and I was like, well, look at that. Yeah, wow. And I also just want to say. I think every kid will self-regulate. That doesn't mean that every kid will stop eating candy completely or oh, no. leave the box She support. loves candy still. Right. She like, has her stash and I just yes. let her have it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what is the victory is not that they're like, oh, I'm sick of Oreos. The victory mm. is that they don't feel anxious about Oreos. Mm. That they can said. enjoy Oreos or whatever mm-hmm. the treat food is when it comes up. But, you know, there's not sneaking. There's not this feeling of yeah. fatness around it. Like all of that is gone. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, we have to wrap things up. I feel like I could talk to you all day. (laughs) Thank you so much. I have one last question for you. This is another question I ask all my guests, and it has nothing to do with this book, which we will (laughs) circle back to in just a second. But it is your last meal on earth. What would it be? I love this question. I saw this and I still was like, I can't pick one. (laughs) I tell my girls, they ask me this question. Junie asks me this all the time because she knows it changes like by the hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, my mom's pasta sauce, which is like my stepfather's pasta sauce, which is a really good Italian with spicy sausage pasta sauce. Mm -hmm. I think that's like my lifetime answer. Like that would always be it with rigatoni and Parmesan cheese. And probably brownies for dessert. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably today what it is too. Yeah, it's pretty darn perfect, especially as we're heading into some March snow. We're recording this in March. (laughs) It's cozy food time for sure. Yeah, that's true. In the summer, I might have a different answer. (laughs) Of course, yes. I want to remind everybody of the name of your book is Fat Talk: Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. Can you tell people where they can find you and where they can find your book? Sure. So you can get Fat Talk anywhere books are sold. There's also the audiobook, which is on Audible and Libro FM and all those places. There is a UK edition for any international listeners, UK, New Zealand, Australia. We got you covered. You can find more of my work at the Burnt Toast newsletter, which I write weekly. Which I highly recommend. Thank you. Exploring all of these issues. And that is at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. And you can also there subscribe to the Burnt Toast podcast, which comes out on Thursdays and is also everywhere you get your podcasts. And it's more of all of this, too. And then on social media, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and begrudgingly TikTok at (laughs) V underscore Soulsmith. You're very brave. (laughs) It's a journey. It's a journey, Nikki. It's a lot. Thank you so much, Virginia. I think this conversation is going to open a lot of people's eyes as well as give them real tools for how to navigate diet culture with not only themselves, but, you know, with their children and how we can start to change this system. So thank you. Thank you. It was a delight. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. And by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. 
I'm Nikki Sizemore. And as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.